0: So today's speaker is Cynthia Clampett I think it's your third time presenting Because you did Mongolia You've done your corn And today's pork Was there anything else? No, we've never done rum She does a talk on rum One of these days It's like when we're like Well, Cynthia has said if we're desperate And we're at the you know, grips, she'll do a talk Absolutely. So, anyway, Cynthia clamped it because she could tell you better about herself than I can. Okay,
1: cool. And
0: I can't even imagine putting that much effort
1: into the pulled pork. I'm most appreciative. You're welcome. So, and. Uh, yeah. Of course, the other, the other thing that, that led to me doing a program on pork is the fact that I had just October 16th, my, my book came out on, uh, it's my third. Well, it's my third book that actually I get royalties from. I've written hundreds of books for textbook publishers. But anyway, it's, it's my third book, uh, second food history book, and it's Pigs, Pork, and Heartland Hogs from Wild Boar to Bacon Fest. So, so that's the, uh, the theme of the lecture. Um, why pigs? Well, it's the most commonly eaten meat in the world. Uh, we think of it as being popular nowadays and everything else partly because, uh, I mean, there's actually a lot of reasons. One is it tastes really good. Um, two, we're getting more into f- multiple ethnic cuisines. And so if you're going to go try Mexican food, you're probably having pork. If you're trying Chinese, you're probably having pork. In fact, in China, if you say meat, you'll get pork. <laughs> the symbol in China for home is a roof with a pig. So it is it is the meat of China, and they have billions of them anyway. So actually, they figure there's roughly well over a, a billion Domestic pigs in the world, and then uncount—you know—countless millions of uh, oh, come on in, countless millions of um, wild boars and feral pigs, but over a billion domestic pigs. So, it was first domesticated. It was actually the first food animal that was ever domesticated. Um, They think dogs may have been following humans around for a while before that as pets and as hunting partners, but the first food animal was pigs, and it hit 12,000 years ago. So we've been eating pig for a really, really long time. Um, Wild boars are extremely opportunistic. And that's probably how they became domesticated. It had nothing to do with people going, oh, let's domesticate animals. This is before we even had agriculture. So nobody was thinking in terms of domesticating things. But being opportunistic, if hunters go out and they kill something like a bison or they kill something else that's very large, um, the pigs would hang out because they knew that the hunter couldn't carry the whole thing home. And they would eat everything that was left. And so this became an easy way to get food. So after a while, they start to follow the hunters home because it's like if they've got food here, they may have food somewhere else. Well, people figured out pretty quickly that having wild boars nearby, though potentially dangerous, was also a, an advantage because then you could just go out and pick off a pig for dinner. That um, They are dangerous. They have jaws that are incredibly powerful. They have teeth that are similar to those of a bear with the addition of tusks. Um, so, pretty fierce, pretty dangerous, but manageable. Not as big as, as a buffalo, not as big as some of the other things they were hunting 10,000 years ago. So, people started feeding them. Um, archaeologists can actually tell how long ago it was that we started feeding them, which is about 12,000 years ago, because they dig them up and they will find jaws where they have cooked grains stuck in the teeth. And since we're pretty certain the pigs weren't cooking the grain, um, it seems likely that the humans had started figuring out that we can keep these guys nearby if we give them some food. Now, of course, the other reason that it was great to be near humans, um, despite the fact that they were picking you off randomly, was, it gave you a certain amount of safety from larger predators. Um, and that was one of those things where it's like a really big boar can take care of itself. But the sow, even though she's probably the size of one of those tables, <coughs> tables back there, she's pretty much out of it once she's had babies. And so she has a whole bunch of babies, and the babies are, are very easy to pick off. And uh, that's actually a, a big problem even today on farms where people have their pigs outside. So, so it gave them a little bit of safety. And so the pigs would tolerate uh, the, what you know, having the, the humans take some of them every once in a while. Um, sort of like Watership Down, if you ever read that one, with the rabbits that hung out where the free food was just because it was free. And, uh, and you got killed every, you know, you, you lost your friends regularly but but free food is good. This is actually a term that uh, they call managed wildlife and this predates full domestication. Domestication is defined as when you've changed the animal enough that it has actually changed genetically somewhat, that it is no longer exactly the same as the wild version. So it kind of is blurry for a long time in history. Um, In fact, it's one of those things where it's like, there's no way to say when and where pigs were domesticated because everybody was doing this everywhere in Eurasia. So everywhere from Japan to Ireland, all the way down to Egypt, everybody was doing this with the wild boars. So vast numbers of them being, being, you know, sort of following people home all over. And the other problem with trying to identify when domestication occurred is they let them forage. Pigs will forage anywhere. Um, They will forage in the city streets. They will forage in the forest. Back then, there were a lot of forests, so you just let the pigs forage. So even if you're feeding them and they're kind of getting more domesticated, if they're going back into the woods, they. they'll kind of revert pretty quickly to wild behavior, plus they're breeding with wild boars. So there was a really a long period, a couple of millennia, where it was kind of like domestic or managed wildlife was kind of ill defined. But but eventually by about 10,000 years ago, they were solidly domesticated, and they got the uh, Latin appendage. Um, it's Sus scrofa is the wild boar, and Sus scrofa domesticus is when you have it domesticated. So, and of course, pretty much until oh, 200 years ago, there was still an issue of animals breeding with, with wild animals when they were allowed to forage, but uh, but it was still pretty solidly domestic. Now. One of the things to explain here is pig" technically speaking, the word "pig" refers to a young pig before it 's sexually mature, which happens at five months or before it's one hundred and fifty pounds, which happens about the same time so so pig it technically is that, and then it becomes a hog so but in discussions of, of the whoops hello in discussions of the animal over time, um, paleontologists refer to it as a pig if it's domestic versus a wild boar. So that's what we'll be using today is when we say pig, we're not talking about cute little babe or anything like that. We're talking about anything that's domesticated in the, the Seuss scrofa family. And if it's not, it's a wild boar. So because there are other technical terms. You've got the sow, you've got the boar, you've got the, but, but, you know all these other things. So, so it's just going to be pig is domestic, wild boar is not. Um, of interest too is the family for Seuss is suidae. And if you ever wondered why when you call a pig, you call sui, it's because it's a suidae. So you're actually using your Latin to, uh, to get the pig to show up. So anyway, the, uh, for me, the other, the other big connection for pigs is my last book was on the history of corn. And in the Midwest, corn and pigs go together so to- completely and utterly that they're almost inseparable. Um, they make a good pair actually, They're both, they, they both produce with stunning abundance, and they are also both kind of quirky genetically speaking. Um, so much of the corn belt is also known as the hog belt. But going back to where we started in Eurasia, um, let's see. They're ready to breed. I mentioned that sexual maturity at five to six months, and this is one of the reasons why it has become both a problem and a blessing over history. Um, They're ready to breed at five to six months. They will have a litter of anywhere from 10 to 30 young, and of those, half of them will be girls, and so they will be ready to breed in five months. And gestation's only four months. So that means that if you start with one pair at the beginning of the year, you could have 50 pigs by the end of the year. So it, and you go from there upwards. And when people started settling areas, you could have thousands of pigs in no time at all, um, just because they do keep um, changing. Now, some of the quirks, because I mentioned they were a little quirky genetically, one of them is The variability is very fascinating to me. The average number of teats for a pig, as I mentioned, they could have 10 to 30 babies. Well, the average number of teats is 12 to 14, but the range is 6 to 32. So you could have a very considerable difference uh, in the number. Um, Another one is ribs. I don't know if you've ever gone out for dinner and wondered why somebody else has got a different size rib slab than you did. Ribs range from 13 to 17 but it's not necessarily by breed. 13 to 17 can occur in the same litter, and occasionally, even on the different sides of the same pig. So they're kind of wacky that way. Now my favorite genetic factoid, hello, is the fact that after 10,000 years of domestication, at the genetic level, they've never really been domesticated. Now, most people have read the stories about how easily they become feral once they wander off into the wild and they return to their wild behavior and everything else. Well, even if they're still on the farm, still in the, in the you know, s- stall with mom after being born, if you don't feed a piglet as much food as it expects, it starts to grow into a wild boar. It will have a longer head, a narrower back, longer legs, bristlier coat, and will not look at all like its parents. It will look much more like a wild boar. So, so they are very close to still being wild animals, even in the totally domesticated situation, so, which I love. It's sort of like they're putting up with us as long as we feed them really well. So, and I know some people like that too. Um, now what they're like and what, they're, what they need kind of helps determine how they have to be raised. Um, they love destroying things. It's one of the reasons if you have a couple of pigs, you want to throw in a couple of a hose or a, a telephone book or something. In order to be happy, they need to be chewing something up and wrecking it. Um, they also love rooting. And they can root to three feet deep, which is devastating in areas if they get out and are running around. This is why the feral pigs are such a big problem. Um, they have no sweat glands which is one of the reasons they wallow, because if it's over 95 degrees outside and there's no water or mud and there's no shade, they'll die. They can't handle the heat because there's no sweat glands. And so and they also sunburn very easily, which is why you have to provide shade for them. It's why you'll never see a pig farm that doesn't at very least have a whole lot of shelters for them because it, you can't put sunblock on them because that taints the meat. So. So they have to be able to be able to get in the shade, they have to have lots and lots of water to drink, and they have to be able to wallow somewhere. So um, they sleep on average 12 out of every 24 hours. It will change based on like what hunting is like in the area if they're in the wild. Obviously on a farm, the schedule gets a little bit more standardized, but out in the wild, it's sort of like okay, if I'm someplace where I need to be awake at night, I'll sleep during the day, and vice versa. But it was 12 out of every 24 hours. So, so they very much sleep all the time. The rest of the time, they are mostly eating or looking for food um, with, with, ramp- with frequent breaks for violence and sex. Um, they breed wild- everywhere, but they breed all the time. Every time a female is, is in heat, she'll be, she'll be pregnant again. Average is two litters a year. Uh, and this is in the wild as well as in, in domestic situations. So sex and then violence, they love fighting. And it's one of the things that's odd too about them. And this is one of the reasons I think a lot of people compare them to humans. Um, they are very sociable animals. They really want to be around others. And they fight constantly. Um, they also really, really curious. They like exploring. They like looking for new things, and they're completely stressed out by anything that's new. So they keep wandering into situations that stress them out, which is one of the reasons why a lot of people uh, spend a great deal of time um, trying to figure out how to keep pigs from stressing by things they can control, because there'll be so many things they can't control. Now, as I mentioned, the teeth are very much like a, bear, a bear's teeth. Uh, They are omnivores, they have the tusks, and interestingly, every muscle, except for the ones that control their eyes, every muscle in the head is designed for opening and closing the mouth, which it can do with ferocious power, which is why they can eat clams and coconuts and pretty much anything they want to. Um, In fact, that's one of the things that's interesting. They kind of define the word omni in omnivore. Most animals, omnivore means they eat both meat and plants. With pigs, they really eat everything they will eat. Grass, roots, nuts, fruits, tubers, snakes, lizards, earthworms, frogs, eggs, young and infirm animals, fish, mollusks, crabs, garbage, carrion, cadavers, and even excrement. So it's basically anything that gets in their way, they will eat it. Um, there have, of course, been stories of like farmers having heart attacks, and. The pigs find the body and just eat them. So anyway, they eat absolutely everything, which is kind of a problem in areas where pigs have gone, gone wild, but it's very useful in places where people are you know, poor or need to feed themselves for the least possible amount of money. Um, now, Another reason pigs were popular was not just because of the abundance of meat, but also because of lard. We actually only came up with oil about 150 years ago up until 150 years ago you had whale oil if you lived near the sea and everybody else it was pigs. Your wheels didn't turn, your loom didn't work, your lamp couldn't be lit unless you had oil from pigs. Um, So there was lard, in fact the Midwest for a long time was the center of lard production for the whole world. Uh, There were times they would just boil an entire pig rather than take out the meat because they wanted every possible bit of lard because it was so vital um, for everything. And I mean it's one of those things you find out through the history once it got to the United States. Uh, the reason Procter and Gamble started in Cincinnati is because of the pigs. And so they used that for soap, they used it for candles. Anheuser, before he met Bush, made his first fortune making soap from pigs in St. Louis. So the lard, the tallow, were absolutely vital And of course the meat kept the people alive as well, but but it's sort of like life didn't happen without pigs. Um, Now as civilization grew, so did reliance on pigs. The nice thing about pigs is you didn't really have to do anything with them. And that's one of the reasons why that line about domestication blurred for a long time. It was not until like, the late Middle Ages, that there were really any such things as pigs on farms. They were not farm animals, they were simply animals that you allowed to forage. Sometimes the foraging was in the cities, which was great as the cities grew, it took care of all the garbage. But you just also let them uh, forage in the forests, because forests used to be really huge. Um, They kept records of how many pigs could be in a forest because they had to sort of control it because they didn't want it completely stripped bare. And there was like one forest in Germany, 43,000 pigs after they started limiting it. So it was huge, huge numbers of pigs, but that was great because you didn't have to do anything except round them up when you wanted one. Um, there was no feeding them. There was no caring for them. There was no trying to breed them to make them better. You just basically let them run around and eat acorns. Um, acorns, that's, that's the other term. but Mast is the word you see a lot when you read about pigs early on. Mast means all the nuts on the floor of the forest. So it's the chestnuts and the acorns and uh, in the United States, when you get here, the hickory nuts and the pecans, and so it's all of these nuts that are available on the ground, and pigs really love that. They will really, they will really pig out. Um, so anyway, as, as they started to become more dependent on pigs, they start, you know, archeologists are going nuts because they keep finding thousands and thousands and thousands of tons of pig bones everywhere civilization starts to grow. Um, Jericho, 10,000 B.C. Um, They were butchering pigs, but by 8,000 B.C., they had actually moved into the town of Jericho, which had the population of 3,000 at that time. So huge numbers of pigs um, already. In China, they were fully domesticated by 8,000 B.C. Interestingly enough, in China, unlike the West, um, China actually enclosed the animals. That's why, in the 1700s, when the British decided to start breeding the pigs to be something other than just a little less than completely wild, they actually brought in Chinese pigs. Um, Even in the United States, in Ohio, the first great pig breed developed here was the Poland China. Because you always had a little bit of China in it, because the Chinese pigs, after 10,000 years of being in enclosures, had you know had developed so that they had slightly shorter legs, more suede backs, and slightly do- more docile temperaments, so that was great for getting that uh, that strain in there but anyway, it was eight thousand bc they were all moved into, into homes and they were all available like I said the symbol for home is, is a roof with a pig um, but they were so popular that by four thousand three hundred BC the government was beginning to write laws about controlling the pigs and how much taxes the government should get from them. So, so it's, it's very, very early pig culture developing there. Um, pigs were used in Europe, but pigs were, were controlled in China. Um, so anyway, the city of Sumer in Mesopotamia by 4300 B.C. Had the, they had the first wheeled vehicles, and if you had wheels, you need lard. But they also had a government... Um, Writing, or they also had writing cuneiform, and we actually see our first written recipes appearing. So we've got recipes and lard both showing up um, in the Indus Valley. Pigs start actually appearing in artwork. Um, that's how we know how important it is. It's it's on plates, it's on walls, it's you know, cups shaped like pigs, toys shaped like pigs. Pigs are everywhere. Mohenjo Daro and Harappa. 40,000 and 50,000 people in their populations. That's 44,000 B.C., so we're already seeing really big cities. I mean, we don't tend to think of a city of 50,000 people in 4,000 B.C., but, uh, but the Indus Valley civilizations were already that big, and pigs were getting big, and they were becoming a government issue just because they made people virtually autonomous because the pigs didn't have to be accounted for. You could just let your pigs run out in the woods and stuff like that and go get them when you need it. So it was a lot harder to control trade. It was a lot harder to tax people. It was a lot harder to, to, to control people's lives if they didn't have to account to anybody else for where their food was coming from. So this is when we start seeing the pigs coming into the laws. Um, now interestingly enough too, as Hammurabi comes along in, in Mesopotamia, um, pigs appear in a law about stealing. And the thing that makes it more interesting than just it's, oh, we're worried about stealing pigs, is for the first time we see laws where the punishment is differentiated based on social status. So we know by about 4000 BC, we're starting to develop levels of society. When you have a small village, everybody can be about the same level. Uh, Maybe the best hunter gets a little more meat than you do, but on the whole, um, societies are the similar. But you get up to 50,000 people, and suddenly you've got a king, and you've got police, and you've got priests, and you've got all these other layers of society. And so, by the law of Hammurabi, time of Hammurabi's law, we're seeing laws about stealing pigs differentiated according to what society level you are at. Um, interestingly, too, one of the things a lot of people have heard over the years is that Stonehenge was built by slaves, but it actually wasn't. It was built by free men, and they have found evidence now of massive feasts pretty much all on pigs. So we owe owe Stonehenge to pigs as well. Um, Interestingly enough, around the same time, 2000 BC, a lot of traditions that seem familiar today start popping in. Um, The Babylonians were using pigs to hunt truffles. So that's not new. The Assyrians, Tyre, in one of the cities of Syria, was very famous for its pig butchers and they invented sausage. Most especially popular was boudin noir. So if you look up boudin noir in La Russe gastronomique, it will actually say invented by the Assyrians. So 2000 BC, we've already got some of the most common forms of food. Um, Then about 1000 BC, the Celts come along And they started near uh, Salzburg, Austria, and they were salt miners. And not too surprisingly, salt miners figured out that salt did good things to things, and they started salting the meat. So the Celts invented ham and bacon. Of course, bacon back then meant pretty much most of the pig. Um, Bacon comes, the word bacon comes from a German word meaning back. And so pretty much everything could be bacon, but that's why, that's like when you go to Canada, their bacon doesn't look like our bacon. And if you go to England, their bacon doesn't look like Canadian bacon or our bacon. Um, interestingly, at least to me, I have to stop saying interestingly, because nobody may care except me. But anyway, <laughs> the reason Americans think of pe- bacon as being pork belly, smoked and salted pork belly, is because in the 1800s, Chicago, the packers, the pork packers in Chicago, decided that American bacon would be pork belly. So the whole rest of the world has bacon that looks different from our bacon because the pork packers, you've got Swift, you've got Armour, you've got all of the famous names in, in pork production at that time in the 1800s. They decided that that would be American bacon and everything else would be something different. Um, so, anyway, so that's when bacon, though, with 1000 BC, is when bacon generically and hams got started. Um, the Romans wrote lovingly of the Celtic ham and relied very heavily on the Celts for ham, especially as the Celts spread. You'll hear about the Celts, get, or the Romans, getting Celtic ham from Gallia, which is France, but they were actually. That's by then, the the Celts had spread all the way through Asia Minor, all the way to the coast in Europe, all the way up into England. And so they they spread a lot from their start in Salzburg. Um, But the bacon and ham, they also invented, interestingly, I think, um, soap and crop rotation. So... Very, very underappreciated group. Now the Greeks came along and they introduced a new thing thing, too. It wasn't just levels of society getting different punishment. It was levels of societies getting different treatment. And eating was for pleasure for the first time, unless you were Spartan. If you were Spartan, then eating was just to survive because you were Spartan. Um, But for all the rest of the Greeks, pleasure was suddenly the, the reason to eat, not just survival. And not just pleasure was okay because you were rich, pleasure was right because you were rich. If you had money and power, you should be eating better. So it became, this is where we start getting the the images of the great banquets and everything else, Um, Homer and the Odyssey that you have a tremendous number of, of stories about slaughtering the fatted hogs and, and making huge banquets out of them. So so this is when this began. They, they considered the the most delicate pig to be one that died of overeating. So anyway, so it became a huge gourmet thing. Then you have the Etruscans, uh, which sort of gets skipped over sometimes when you're talking about the classical period, but the Etruscans were very influential. Um, the Etruscans were wildly gourmandic. I mean, they loved their food. They played music while you were cooking. They had huge feasts. Um, Interestingly, compared to the Greeks and the Romans, they actually allowed women in the feasts, which was not done in Rome or or Greece. Um, But not only did they play music while they were cooking, they had their herds of pigs would all be allowed to go out and forage together in the forests. But each group of pigs had been taught a specific tune on a trumpet. And each group of pigs would respond to that tune. So when you wanted your pigs to come, you could go out and play that music and just your pigs would come. So they could let them all just fan out through the forest and then bring them all back in. Now, Alexander the Great came along and he put pigs at the forefront of Hellenism. He could not imagine anybody being civilized and not eating pork. in Rome. Rome had the longest lasting influence on our culture, even today. Um, Rome gave us the idea of lettuce-based salads. Uh, you get outside of the influence of Rome and salad could be you know, pureed eggplant. They just, nobody has this idea of lettuce-based salads except the descendants of the Roman culture. They also believed in ending meals with dessert. Which has come on down through us, but then through Apicius, whoever he was, and that's the other thing is there's everybody's like, oh, here's Apicius, the book by Apicius. Well, apparently there were anywhere from two to three different people named Apicius who all contributed to this book, which kind of helps you understand why there's like nine different chapters that seem to overlap each other. But of the nine, eight are about pigs. Um, so anyway, he says that basically the things that have still come down to us today from Apicius in ancient Rome is. It's good to serve pork with apples, and you're supposed to put mustard on sausage, which I figure most Chicagoans would appreciate in particular. Whole roasted pigs were for the wealthy, but sausage was street food. Most people, and it was pretty much that was back then. It was like you had the rich and you had the working class. You didn't have a middle class at all. And the working class didn't have kitchens. They ate on the street. Everything was street food, pretty much like Asia today, if you've been to Asia. So everything was street food, and it was almost all sausage. Um, it, it sausage appears in Greek, you know, in Roman tragedies and things like that too, just because it was so much the food of the common man. Um, so anyway. Rome fell, the Middle Ages came, a uh, grossly underappreciated time period. It gave us most of our European universities and Gothic architecture and eyeglasses and the musical scale and the clock. So, a wonderful period. It also ended slavery almost entirely and elevated the uh, status of women. Um, and unfortunately, that all went away with the Renaissance. Um, but anyway, for the next 2,000 years during the Middle Ages and beyond, Pork was pretty much the only food you had, only protein you had if you were working class or lower class. Now, that sounds pretty limiting, except for the fact that pretty much everybody had pigs. The average peasant during the Middle Ages had at least three pigs. And so you have a decent garden and three pigs. You weren't eating that badly. I mean, we have this image of them all being like dirt poor, and there were periods. You'd have a huge population explosion, and then there'd be some, you know, faint, you know, some drought, and, and people did starve. But on the whole, through the Middle Ages, people ate pretty well. Um, now, you had two different groups of pigs, though. You had the ones that were still foraging out in the uh, forests, but with the rise of cities in Europe, you had the, the street pigs. Um, everybody who was poor wanted a pig, and most of them lived... On the street, they cleaned up the gutters. They cleaned up after the horses. They cleaned up everything that was thrown out, and so um, you had, you know, yes, but you had huge problems with that because they they're big, and they're rude, and they knocked things over, and they would scare horses, and they would. There was actually in the 1100s a uh, prince that, uh, in Paris that was killed when a pig you know, ran under the legs of his horse. And they outlawed pigs for a while, and nobody paid any attention to the law outlawing pigs because everybody wanted to have their pig. Um, we still, like I said, up until the middle of the Middle Ages, we, we had never seen a farm animal pig. Pigs, they, they developed then, in the middle of the Middle Ages, they developed what they called the cottage pig, which is a pig you kept at home and fed with scraps off the table. Up until then, everybody foraged. So it was just a difference of where you were foraging. Um, Then, of course, in the later Middle Ages, you had people um, starting to cut down trees because they either wanted ships or because they needed farmland. The population was growing. People were doing very well. So they started cutting down trees. And the more trees they cut down, the less mass there was for the pigs. So suddenly, you've got to start planning what you're going to feed pigs as opposed to just letting them wander off on their own. So this became a a whole new um, area of concern. The other area of concern is the city pigs. As more of them moved into the cities, the city pigs, they'll clean up the mess from other animals, but nobody's cleaning up their mess. And so Middle Ages, the high Middle Ages, about, you know, 1,200, um, this is when we see the first urban planning. People started going, we can't do this. We can't just let them poop all over the house, or all over the town. We have to have it cleaned up. We have to, it's fouling the water. I mean, they didn't even know about germs yet, but they could tell that the water was nasty, and so they started cleaning up after the pigs. So, um, at this point, though, there are still, there's still a place in the world for wild boars. Wild boars, like, if there's no war going on, how do you prove your manhood? You go out and you hunt a wild boar, because they're still incredibly dangerous, and uh, this is a quote from Edward Duke of York in the late 1400s. He says, the boar slayeth a man with one stroke as with a knife. So they really are incredibly dangerous. And the male, the big boars, some of them, depending on which part of the, the Europe they're from, some of them are particularly dangerous and particularly large and they can get up to 1,000 pounds. And so it's just, it really was a proof of your manhood. And this went on through the Renaissance, basically. It was how you did it, but anyway, the. Um, Millions of pigs, but diminishing forests by 1400s. And so this is when the cottage pigs started. Now during this time, things didn't sit still in Asia either because I mentioned that China had a lot of them. By 1400s, by the middle of the Middle Ages, China had become the number one consumer of pork in the world. Now, China didn't have the problem with pigs wandering. As I mentioned, they were all enclosed. The word for pigsty in Chinese is the same as the word for outhouse. And that's because you just backed your outhouse up to the pigsty, and the pigs took care of all of your excrement for you. So nobody had to worry about cleaning things up. It's probably one of the reasons why they use a lot of marinade for pork in China, um, because pigs do start taking on that flavor. But one person's one person's excrement can raise with plus a few handfuls of, of plants can raise a pig. Now as China expanded its control, there were a lot of different people who were not Han Chinese. There were a lot of different ethnic groups around the, the perimeters. And as China grew and started to get stronger, it actually started pushing people off the continent, basically. Um, it was like, go somewhere else. Some of them went to Taiwan, some of them went and got, had, had boats and started going to Indonesia. But this is also what created the group we now know as Polynesians. and they. Most of them took pigs with them, so they headed all over the uh, Pacific Ocean with their pigs. So if you've been to Hawaii and you had a kulua pig while you were there, that tradition goes back to 500 A.D., when the Polynesians first got there from China. So that's not a Western introduction. I mean, a lot of times we tend to think, oh, yeah, it must have been when we first arrived with with Captain Cook. But it was like, no, 500 AD, when they first got to Hawaii, when the Polynesians pushed out of China, got to Hawaii, they had their pigs with them because everybody wants pigs. Now, fading into the Renaissance, the Renaissance Um, As I mentioned, we brought back slavery, we brought back the lower status of women, but one of the most important things for what was about to happen, because 1492 is pretty much where the Renaissance begins. um, Race nullius. It's a Latin word, it's a Roman concept. It means if you don't see an owner, the land is free. Not that that would have any impact on the exploration of the New World, Um, So on to colonization, the the people start heading out, I should probably keep an eye on time because I can get carried away. Anyway, as people started heading out overseas, um, they were taking pigs. Now, one of the things worth noting is in 1492, when Columbus was sailing the ocean blue, the superpower was Spain. Number two was Portugal. So the two of them started squabbling over the New World, and so they talked to the Pope, And in 1493, the Pope set a line of demarcation, divided the world in half between Portugal and Spain. Everybody else complained, but nobody could complain enough to get anything done because the Pope was Spanish, and the Spanish had the most powerful military in the world. So they were pretty much dividing the world in half. That's one of the reasons the line went through part of South America, which is why Brazil speaks Portuguese, and the rest of South America speaks Spanish is because of the line of demarcation. And basically the Pope just said, everything east of the line belongs to Portugal, everything west of the line belongs to Spain. So the Portuguese headed off to tackle Africa and India, Um, particularly wanted the, the spice trade, but they also wanted control. When they landed in Goa, one of the things they had taken with them was the Portuguese Inquisition. We tend to think of, thanks to Monty Python, we tend to think of Spanish Inquisition only, but there was a Portuguese Inquisition as well, and they took that with them to Goa. And the two things you had to eat is if you were Hindu, you had to eat cows, and if you were Muslim, you had to eat pigs. And that's one of the reasons why the number one dish in Goa today is pork vindaloo. It's because of that Inquisition. So huge amount of pork is still eaten in that part of India. There are other parts where they eat it, but that's where it became a tradition, because of the Portuguese. Now the Spanish, who now owned the uh, New World, minus um, Portugal, or minus Brazil, uh, began to settle in with a fervor. Of course, they were looking for gold, but one of the things that we don't always think about is pretty much all of the major conquistadors, de Soto, Hernández, Pizarro, We're from Extremadura in Spain, and Extremadura is where Jamón Ibérico comes from. These were people that had grown up in a serious pig culture, serious gourmet focus on pork, and so they didn't just introduce pigs, they introduced them fervently. Um, They took over towns and turned them into pork producers. But one of the other things they did, besides introducing basically jamón abirraco and Spanish sausages, is they also would drop pigs on all the islands. Because if your ship sank, you could swim ashore and be certain of getting a meal. So they dropped breeding pairs everywhere they went which eventually, of course, became a problem, and that's why we end up with like, the razorbacks in the south and all that, but, but they dropped all these pigs. It actually really did help a lot of people. Um, in 1609, when a British ship crashed on the shores of Bermuda, they all made it ashore, and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pigs, and so they ate very well till they were rescued, and that's why when Bermuda became a country, there was a pig on its coin. So it was, it was a very clever idea. Um, but pigs very much became part of the culture. Now, they adopted local methods of cooking the pigs while they were there. And I should mention, when 1609, 1588, the Spanish Armada gets defeated. And so after that, other people are coming. That's why the British eventually came. But even before that, you had all of the uh, deserters, all of the shipwrecked victims, learning how to cook from the locals. Now, the Carib, who give us, of course, the name Caribbean, um, the Carib had something they called bouquin. Bouquin was a way of cooking on a greenwood lattice with a very smoky fire. And a lot of the guys who learned how to do bouquin became very skilled at it. Um, and the French started referring to them as les boucaniers, And then the British came along and they changed boucaniers to Buccaneer. So if you've got a Weber kettle in the backyard, you can claim a little little pirate history there. Now, the other thing that they did, though, is, and there's lots of of arguments over where the name barbecue came from. Some say it's the French barbe which means from beard to tail. Some say it's from the barbacoa, which also came from the islands, from the Taino. Um, But wherever it was, it was definitely from the Caribbean. In 1755, when Dr. Samuel Johnson wrote his very famous Dictionary of the English Language, he had an entry for barbecue as a verb and barbecue as a noun, and he basically said, barbecue is a pig prepared in the manner of the West Indies, what we now know as the Caribbean. So that was, that was it, barbecue was pig. And we've obviously modified that now, but, but basically, when it first started in the 1700s, barbecue was pig. Now, this, of course, in the New World, is where corn and pigs first got together, and because nobody had corn before then, and it was very popular and it made it very easy to grow, raise the pig and to feed the pig, and there was corn everywhere. And of course, once you get to the New World, um, I don't know how many of you saw my corn presentation, but it was one of those things where it wasn't just Pocahontas and Squanto introducing a few people to corn. It was the corn, it was what became the food of the colonies. Everybody loved corn. They got completely addicted to corn. So much to the fact that Thomas Jefferson, when he was in France, planted corn in his garden in Paris, even though he was a world-class foodie. But people loved corn. But they also loved corn not only to eat, but because they could feed their animals corn. You can't really do that with, like, barley and stuff that easily. So corn was absolutely perfect. And the nice thing is, too, is animals love it. Um, In New England, people wrote that if you had a warehouse with four or five different types of grain in it, the rats and mice always went first for the corn. Uh, It's sweet. It's tasty. Everybody loves it. And, of course, the pigs were crazy about corn. So it made it very easy. Um, But, of course, you also had forests filled with all kinds of nuts, all kinds of masts. So, so pigs were brought immediately as soon as they could get settled in. Um, corn helped. Pigs made all the difference. Corn kept them alive. Pigs kept them, helped them prosper because pigs actually were multiplying faster than the colonists were, um, which became kind of a problem. But the advantage to pigs, because you think, oh the British, they love their lamb, why don't they bring lamb? Well, you got all these forests full of bears and and wolves. Sheep are lunch, Uh, but a boar, a big, big full-sized male pig, actually even just an annoyed female, um, could pretty much hold its own, and even today with with feral pigs, um, pigs regularly kill bears. So it's one of those things where if you wanted an animal that would survive in the wild, you wanted a pig. Plus, it could be let go in the forest and live on its own. So, that was really important because initially, there was a tremendous shortage of labor. Um, You were pretty busy trying to get a little farm started, trying to build a little house. You didn't really have time to sit there and mollycoddle some animal. So, pigs were absolutely perfect for early history. Um, Now, the one big problem with pigs is they could, in in fact, find their own food, but they didn't always find food that didn't belong to somebody else. They can smell food at a distance of seven miles, and a lot of times the biggest problems between settlers and Native Americans was the pigs going, I can smell food, and pretty much the entire year's corn crop at some Native American settlement would be gone overnight. So, plus, of course, if they're eating all the acorns, that's Native Americans used to use acorns. The the deer are leaving, they're eating the deer's young. They're just, I mean, it was one of those things where it was really eating the clams, eating the lobsters, just pretty much eating everything the Native Americans had relied on for so long, even when the Europeans weren't eating it. So, it was a big problem. and that was one of the reasons that a lot of the Native Americans started moving west, even before things got, you know, on between the settlers and the Native Americans. Because initially, they all tried to be friends. And it was just when, when they had to be. And there was actually a, uh, one Native American who, who presented to the government. He says, can you tell us where to go that we can be safe from your pigs? So... It it was a big problem. Now, anyway, you had by this point in time, it wasn't just British settlers. You had Danish and Dutch and French and Swedes all moving in. We had New Sweden in what's now uh, Delaware. We had um, New Amsterdam, um, which is, you know, everybody thinks that that it was like the British that bought Manhattan for a handful of trinkets, but it was the Dutch, and it was actually not just trinkets. It was things like hatchets and knives, so useful trinkets, Um, but anyway, the Dutch did buy man- most of Manhattan, and the British started settling on part of Manhattan. but both groups had large numbers of pigs. Well, the Dutch wanted to keep the British pigs out of their part of Manhattan, so they built a wall. And in Manhattan, they have a wall street today, where that wall used to be, because there was a street built along the wall. So pigs and Wall Street have had a long association now. When sugarcane overtook the Caribbean, one of the things they started to do is they started getting rid of everything. Um, Sugar, the mid-1600s, you had the big three hitting Europe. You had chocolate, coffee, and tea all hitting. Suddenly, everybody wanted sugar, and the Caribbean was a great place to raise sugar, so they stopped growing food. They stopped raising pigs. They got rid of everything, cleared the place, took all the trees out, and planted sugarcane and they were, get, they were getting fabulously wealthy, but they had no food. So they had to turn to the mainland, and this is the cash crop that saved New England. Virginia had tobacco, New England had salt pork. And so pretty soon you've got tens of thousands of barrels of salt pork being shipped, first to the Caribbean, then to Europe, and basically this is, salt pork is what made the, the new colonies wealthy. Um, then we had 1776, and we stopped being ink British. When we stopped being British, one of the things we could do is we could start moving west because the King of England had very much limited where it was that settlers could settle. And so people start moving into Ohio. Um, Ohio is pretty much where the Corn Belt started. It's where the Poland-China pig was first created. Um, But everybody had pigs and corn. In fact, Tennessee's first nickname was Hogs and Hominy because they had so much of both. So it kept going, sledding out. Other animals would eventually arrive, but when you were heading west into the wilderness, you wanted pigs for a couple of reasons. A, they would multiply, but B, they were tough. You were going into an area, once again, where you had wolves, and as you got further west, you added wildcats. Um, so you wanted an animal that was tough and resilient and... They can, they can run a lot faster than you think. We see these little cute little pigs and stuff in movies, but a full-grown, semi-wild pig can run like 30 miles an hour and can clear a five-foot fence. And so that would be one of the things that they would count on, but they would always come home at night. They would go off and find food. You didn't really have to feed it, and then they would come home. So, so the Midwest was settled with corn and pigs. Um, 1830s. British novelist Frederick Marriott toured the Midwest and wrote, in a new country, pork is more easily raised than any other meat, and Americans eat a great deal of pork. So anyway, before the trains, pigs were important for another reason, and that is, grain is really heavy. And if you want to get all of your grain to market, all of that great corn that you're growing all across the Corn Belt, you want it to walk there. And the easiest way to do that is to feed it to a pig and pigs became known as cornfields on legs because you could feed all the corn to a pig. One bushel of corn produces eight pounds of pork and then you could walk your corn to market. And they sometimes walked a thousand miles because that's who we started feeding the entire eastern seaboard. Um, Then we started getting processing. Once we had trains you could, you could actually process stuff and ship it processed already rather than having have the just live animals going to market. The first place that pigs really got big time processing was in Cincinnati, which became known as Porkopolis. Um, pork was being produced at such staggering rates, it, because so many immigrants were coming in at this point, they, there was almost no way that the pork pro- processors could keep up with demand. And they were constantly, constantly slaughtering the pigs, um, both for the lard and for the meat. And so huge demand. And the one thing that nobody really cared about that much was ribs. And so ribs were being tossed out. Well, all the German settlers that had come to Cincinnati were like, you know, baskets with, what a country. <laughs> I, just, I just got a basket of free ribs. So a lot of barbecue ribs out there, even before barbecue, well, it would be German ribs at the time. But... Uh, Anyway, so pork was just exploding in Porkopolis. Now, Porkopolis developed something that was going to kind of transform the processing, which was something called the disassembly line. Instead of taking all day to butcher a pig like it would with a family, they could get it done in 35 seconds. Now, Civil War, Cincinnati's kind of Tennessee. I mean, it's, it's right there on the river, on the Ohio River, and its, it's culture is more Kentucky than it is Ohio. Um, so a lot of the pork processing started to move to Chicago. There had always been a lot of pork processors all sort of scattered, but right after the Civil War, they were all consolidated into one massive location, the Union Stockyards, which were so huge I mean, almost inconceivable. they consider it the eighth wonder of the world. There was a town right next door. They called it Packing Town. It wasn't really a town. It was just all of the businesses involved in packing. A lot of the names we still know, Hay, Armour, Swift. And because they were processing so much and processing it so quickly, they were beginning to supply the whole country. In fact, by 1900, when you had ice harvesting making it possible to ship butchered meat to the East Coast. um, They were supplying 82% of all the meat consumed in the United States, hence the hog butcher for the world. I mean, it was basically, that was one that was coming out of Chicago. Now, another influence, though, from the disassembly line, because Chicago perfected it and got it even faster than it had been in Cincinnati, and a young guy from Detroit came over and admired the disassembly line, and Henry Ford decided that if he ran it in reverse, you could put things together. So we owe the assembly line to the butchering of pigs in the 1800s. So anyway, um, as immigrants arrived in the late 1800s to early 1900s, huge numbers started flooding in from Eastern Europe, from Southern Europe. Um, The transcontinental railroad brought a huge number of um, Chinese to the Midwest. Uh, By the 1900s, early 1900s, Mexicans were coming north to work in the uh, sugar beet fields. So you have this milieu where pretty much all the cultures being focused in the Midwest are cultures with serious pork traditions. And so we are, you know, keep getting much, much more pork oriented as time goes by. Um, We get hot dogs, we get canned hams, One of the things that happened in the Midwest was branding. Um, You had the first branding of products. Everybody made sausages since the time of the Assyrians, but it was Oscar Mayer who put a little yellow band around it and said, these are my sausages. And so this is one of the things you also see starting in Chicago is the branding of meats. Refrigerated train cars eventually came where you weren't cutting up the ice. Now one of the things that made it easy to get a lot of ice in the 1800s is the 18, mid-1800s was the end of the Little Ice Age. Uh, people don't always realize 1350 to 1850 was the Little Ice Age and it was much, much colder than it is today. And, in fact, it's like people froze to death when they were settling Virginia, so it, it was a lot different. So you had a huge amounts of ice, but fortunately, by the 1900s, we've developed, actually, refrigerated cars, um, so change continues. Now, today, of course, we're eating more pork, because more people are interested in ethnic foods, and that introduces us to a lot of, of pork-related foods. Um, it's also less expensive, so when the economy gets di- dicey, it also is still incredibly abundant, and... And, and who doesn't love bacon? So, heritage pigs are becoming more popular. One of the things that's interesting about heritage pigs is that heritage pigs are actually a fairly relative or a fairly uh, a fairly recent development. Um, it was late 1700s that the British decided that it would be nice to have a pig that was something slightly less wild, or you know a little bit more interesting than just something that wasn't quite a wild boar. Um, up until the middle of the Middle Ages it was almost impossible to tell a domestic pig from a wild boar other than where it lived, because they still were hairy and still had tusks. And so the late 1700s, the British started. They brought in pigs from China, the more docile ones, the ones with more fat, and they started breeding them. And that's why, if, like, if you think about it, all of the heritage breeds, you know. It's like there's the Gloucester Old Spot, and there's the Berkshire, and there's the, you know, they, they're all British names. And that's because it was the British that created most of it. Now, there are some that were developed other places. Um, Hungary's got a really famous, the Mangalitsa. It's like 60% fat. Um, the United States developed a few breeds, and people were eating to eat well. In fact, in the 1800s, there was a huge Berkshire pig um, craze, and it's one of those things where it comes back now. Berkshire pigs are usually crossed with something else now, just because Berkshire pigs are not very good mothers, and they tend to have a very small Uh, litters, so they're a little harder to raise. They're a little more, a little less cost effective than than other pigs. But it's becoming popular, so it's sort of fun to see that come back now. Um, Now why well-done pork has gone away, you know, it's like you can now see, oh, it's, you only have to cook it to 145. The reason that went away is in the 1950s, pretty much all the cities in the United States, over a hundred thousand people, processed their garbage by feeding it to pigs. And then they sold the pork. So it was a major income stream for a lot of these cities, but it also took care of the whole problem of garbage. The problem was that some of the garbage was from slaughterhouses, from restaurants, from things like that, where the meat might be raw, that it might be, you know, might be some disease being passed around because pretty much everything that's a carnivore has trichinosis. We tend to think of that in terms of pigs, but everything has, that's a carnivore has trichino- carries trichinosis, even polar bears. So, so you've got all of these animals being slaughtered. Some of them are just you know, dead pets, whatever, but you've got all of this garbage being eaten by the pigs, and the cities were making too much money off of it and benefiting from not having to deal with the garbage. You know, we didn't have landfill back then, and so you just went, yeah, we'll just cook your meat well, real well. And when that was finally, there was a little scare at one point in time and everybody went, that's it, stop feeding them garbage. It was outlawed. And today, they're all fed very controlled diets, at least on on the big farms. Very controlled diets, very careful diets. And that's why they're now saying you only have to cook it to 145 because they know pretty much what the pigs are eating and they're not eating any raw meat. The other thing that helped with the raw meat thing too is discovering vitamin B12 which we only discovered in, like, the mid-1900s. Um, animals, that, animals that are omnivores, and that includes us, need B12 to survive. And meat is the best source of B12. So if you try to just feed a pig plants, it will die. So it was just one of the... It's amazing how many vitamin-related problems were. It's like why chickens were so... One of the recipes I have in the book is city chicken, and that's made from pork because chickens used to be really expensive because in the winter in the north, they died for the lack of vitamin D. So we eat a lot better since the discovery of vitamins. Um, But anyway, so they discovered the B12, they could keep the pigs healthy and happy without having to feed them garbage and without having to feed them meat. And so it all became a lot safer. Feral pigs is a big problem, of course, pigs escape. There were some people that brought over some wild boars from Europe thinking it would be great to have a hunting reserve, except that the pigs were so insanely dangerous that nobody wanted to hunt them and some of them escaped and they joined the feral pigs. And we've got the razor bags left from the Spanish dropping pigs all over the place. And then we get pigs that escape um, from farms. That's the, that's the reason that a lot of people like the idea of indoor pig raising is because it's really, really hard to get out as opposed to if you just have a fence, pigs can p- pigs can topple trees. You know, they've got really strong snouts and they can they can dig up whatever they want to. So fences can pretty well easily, you know, pretty easily be destroyed. So a lot of people like the indoor paradigm because it is easier to guarantee the pigs will stay inside. Some states have kind of made a war against the heritage breeds just because they are a little closer to being feral. Um, And as mentioned, pigs revert to being wild very easily, so it's it's one of those problems. Now we've got they they figure there's I mean there's like six million feral pigs in Texas, and they figure there might be as many as 20 million feral pigs in the United States. Most of the states have now seen feral pigs; they're as far north as Michigan now. Um, So it's just one of those things where it sounds. You know, some people think, oh, it's, they're, just, they're just trying to get by. Well, they're killing everything. They eat, you know, endangered species. They eat the young of other animals. They, dest- the their own. they eat the young of their own as well. Yes, they, they but that's, that would help in this case. But anyway, just, but they'll eat, they'll, they're, they're destroying uh, wildlife reserves. They're destroying national parks. They're destroying all of these other things that, uh, are, pro- that are causing a problem. And the pro- one of the big problems is they're very fast. They're very hard, they're very clever, they're very good at hiding. Um, Kansas has had great success with using helicopters because it's a lot harder to hide if somebody can look down and see you. Um, And the reason that they sort of have to keep up the pressure is if if we destroyed 70% of all the feral pigs this year, it would only take them three years to rebound. That's how fast they reproduce. So it's just one of those issues where it's, so if you hear stories about um, governments questioning some of the ways of raising pigs, that's why. I mean, it's like, be a little sympathetic, even if you don't want to lose your Berkshire hogs. Be a little least sympathetic to understanding that there's a reason that they don't want all of the feral pigs out there, because all of a sudden it becomes a Stephen King novel. Um, Now... Many of the stories you hear these days, because I find a lot of pig books will start with horrible stories. You know, it's like there was one that came out a few years ago. It starts, it starts in a courtroom. Um, there's news stories. There's all these things about, you know, collapsing lagoons and pigs drowning. That's North Carolina. Um, North Carolina, when they started losing tobacco money because people stopped smoking, they needed a way to make money. So they thought, well, pigs are easy. So they went from, like, number... 40, as far as pig raising states, to number two in a matter of a few years. And the problem with that is that most of the pigs are being raised in the floodplain, which is why every time you hear have a hurricane, you hear this read the stories about losing, um, you know, 10,000, 20,000 pigs because they drowned in the floods. It's also where you hear about the lagoons collapsing, because hurricanes tend not to leave things in place if they involve liquid. So most of the problems that you're reading about are in North Carolina. In the Midwest, and people work very, very hard everywhere to try and minimize the problems, but in the Midwest, we've kind of got it licked for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're flat. Second of all, we don't get hurricanes. Third, we've got a lot of land. We're really far away from everybody else. The average pig farm in the Midwest is at least 150 miles away from a town. And most of the guys work very hard at making sure that they minimize how much you know, unpleasantness might exist. Now another thing that helps is more and more people are doing the um, inside, raising the pigs indoors. Now, I know there's a lot of people that think, oh, outdoors is wonderful. Outdoors can be wonderful. It raises very tasty pork, but there are a lot of disadvantages. One is, is every time the pig poops, it runs down into the nearby water stream. So it's more polluting. They root, so it's a problem from erosion. But even for the pigs themselves, you know, it's like we have this sort of Disney-esque idea of what it would be like to be raised on an outdoor farm. But I went to one of the bigger um, outdoor heritage farms in Michigan, and the guy's sitting there just casually saying, oh, yeah, well, the raccoons take some of the newborns, and we've got about 34 coyotes, and there's hawks here all year, and in the spring, the eagles bring their kids to teach them how to hunt. And you're just going... So you lose a lot of pigs, right? And he says, yeah, we lose the babies, about half the babies every year. So it's not necessarily like this charmingly, you know. I mean, I've had people say, oh, but Babe was such a cute movie. I was like, yeah, but Babe is a fiction. You know, that pig was that size for about two days. Um, So anyway, it's just one of those things to remember is that it, it can be, there are challenges And it doesn't mean we shouldn't have it. In fact, I consider it's one of the great blessings of living in the United States, is that we can have incredibly flavorful, slightly dangerous, and difficult to raise heritage breeds on the days that we can afford it, and that we can also go to the grocery store and buy lots and lots of pretty tasty, really safe pork for 99 cents a pound. So it's one of those things where it's a balancing act We could not survive raising all the pigs outdoors. It would, in fact, destroy the country. So it's really nice that we have both options. Um, Raising them indoors has a lot of value. Um, One of the things is every pig can be seen every single day. So there's no surprises. You don't suddenly find that a pig is sick. You don't suddenly get surprised by some runt being killed by his litter mates. You don't. They're, They're all seen every day. They get a lot of care. I don't know if you remember from a couple of years ago, some bird landed in the middle of a, a flock of chickens and they had to end up destroying 10,000 chickens because it, they got a disease from the bird that just flew in. Well, that's a possible problem with pigs nowadays. It's like some other animal wanders in and suddenly they've all got distemper or they've all got brucellosis or they've all got, you know, flu. I mean, that's the thing that we don't realize is flu was the first disease that was introduced into the United States. I mean, everybody's like, oh, smallpox. Well, actually, flu came first because it came with the pigs. And some of those early types of flu still are found in the pig population. So it not only keeps the pigs away from things that might infect them, it keeps them from infecting us. So having them protected is useful on that stage. Um, They can be so protected from disease that antibiotic use is going away, which is not a bad thing. And the other thing is is that all of the, the excrement and all of the urine are captured underneath, in tanks underneath the building. So the smell is, I mean I've stood five feet away from a pig farm and not been able to smell it. And it can be processed then, there are experts that process it, and it can either be turned into fertilizer or processed for energy. There are great energy plants now where whole operations, whole farming operations can be run entirely off of the energy produced by, by the, the pig poop. So um, lots of reasons for having them indoors, some good reasons for having them out of doors. But it's a good thing we have the indoor option simply because we would have a lot less food if we didn't have the indoor option. So it's just uh, support the people that raise the good, expensive pigs and then be really, really happy you've got lots and lots of cheap pork at the grocery store. Um, that's pretty much it, pretty much mostly best practices. That's one of the things that's fascinating too, is the best practices, people, every farmer I talk to talks in terms of stewardship and in terms of feeding people. They do not talk in terms of making money. They do not talk in terms of success. They, they beam and say, you know, 100,000 people get four ounce serving of, of pork three times a week from my farm cool, and they want to be good stewards, and it's most of the farms are like fourth, fifth, sixth generation farms, so just, it's just something to keep in mind, um, that the farmers are out there working really hard to try and make everything best possible way. Uh, Temple Grandin is very popular. She, I don't know if you know who she is, but she's a specialist uh, in animal care, and so they try to make the pigs safer and life safer and the pigs happier, and it's, it's, it's working, and so in the Midwest, I'd say probably 99% of what you're gonna see will be best practices. Um, and if not for virtue's sake, then for marketing's sake, because as one of the meat judges I talked to said, so it's like, we, we don't buy meat if it looks like the pig's been hurt. Because it, it's, you know, you can tell. And it's like, it affects the flavor, it affects the quality of the meat, and we don't wanna have, be buying meat from people that don't treat their pigs well. And so it's it's uh, best practices here in the Midwest. So we get the both the best of all possible worlds here. We get to stay as far away from the pigs as we can, and we still get to have as much as we want to eat. So, anyway, any questions? Yes. Well, I mean, they're ones of the, you can you can breed animals for almost anything, and they are ones from they're from Vietnam, and they've been bred for ten thousand years to be as small as possible. And and I think it's an, you're an idiot to have one as a pet. But anyway, it's. Uh, it's just—it's not—they're not good pets. They're, but they're, are they something you would eat? You could, yeah. I mean, it's still a pig. It's just a smaller, slightly more docile pig. Yeah. I mean, they still get—they get. Yeah, they begin with. I mean, they get to a couple hundred pounds, but compared to like eight hundred pounds, they're pretty small. So they're smaller than the really big ones, but it's still—it's a tough pet to, to own. And I suspect that what would happen is just like with the craze a few years ago with wolves. Everybody wanted a dog that was part wolf. And I went down to the wolf park in Lafayette, Indiana, and they said, oh yeah, people just keep dumping their dogs here because they get the dog grows up from a puppy and all of a sudden they realize it's a wolf. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, you can't handle this, and you just get rid of it. So it's not a kindness to the animal. Um, Plus, and pigs, you know, it's, they're not that reliable. I mean, it's one of those things, some of the farmers I interviewed said, oh, yeah, they're all named, and they answer to their name, and we have one little will fetch a stick. You still never turn your back because you just don't know. You know, just one day they get up on the wrong side of the, of the pile of straw, and then they take you out. So it's just, uh, they, they like to fight, and you just, you just don't always know. And even if they don't do it intentionally... That's one of the things is like if if it weighs eight hundred pounds and it bumps into you, it doesn't really matter if it meant to hurt you. So so I think I think I think ill advised I'd say for the pit potbelly pigs, but you know, yeah, they are they are a breed that is more docile, it's more swayed back, it's got more of that that Chinese um, influence in the pig. And it's just but it's I, I would be willing to bet that by the time it's two or three years old she'll want to ditch it. So, yes? Um, I mean, it depends on what you're, what you're looking for, but I'd say, you know, it's like because some people want really, you know, huge hogs because they're doing some huge outdoor hog barbecue thing. Um, but you can, you can, as soon as they're hogs, you can start to, to take, you know, to send. It was typical for the supermarket. Yeah, for the supermarket trade. So it depends on, uh, you know, usually, yeah, usually about 150 to 200 pounds, they're ready to go to market five or six months old. And uh, anyway, yes, we had one. Well, they're intelligent compared to most things that sleep 12 hours a day. Um, If you look for lists of most intelligent animals, uh, they're never in the top 10. They are, I think, one of the problems with talking about animal intelligence is that there's so few animals we've tested. They're surprised they keep finding out. It's like, you know, octopus is really smart. So, so they're not in the top 10, but they're clever. And I, I think there's a difference between intelligence and clever. They're, they're clever, they're devious. If they know there's sahood somewhere, they will act nonchalant until another pig leaves because they want that food themselves. They're not going to turn, you know, not going to make sure that nobody else, they don't want anybody else to know about that food. So, so they're clever, they're a little devious. Um, they figure that a wild boar is about 10% smarter than your average farm pig, just because the farm pig doesn't have to think about where to get food or how to be safe. Oh, dogs are vastly smarter. Dogs are vastly smarter than pigs. Um, yeah, there's no, there's no compare. I mean, dogs are always like in the top two or three on those lists. You know, it's like you get chimpanzees, dolphins, and dogs. Border collies are actually at the top of some of the lists. So, so dogs are way up there. Pigs are maybe 15 or 20. Um, they're, I think a lot of the reason people talk about their... T- and they're not dumb animals, but they're not as smart as they ought to be for how much we talk about how smart they are a lot of the discussion of how smart they are is to offset the fact that they sleep 12 hours a day and roll around in the mud. And so it's, trying, it's like a PR thing, you know? It's one of those, it's just like, well, you know, I know what they look like they're stupid, but they're really clever, so they, but, but they are clever, and they, they do, you know, like I said, they like to destroy things, but they are very clever at finding their ways into things. They're good at dismantling things. So... I'm one other thing, you said
0: North Carolina was
1: yeah. What's number one? Iowa. Number one in corn. Number one in pigs. Probably always will be. Sixty million pigs. It's, it's, I think it's probably number four still. Yeah, because it used to be higher, but then North Carolina became number two. So everything got bumped down a le- level. So, But yeah, we're in the top because we're number two for corn. So you have, if you have corn, you're probably going to have pigs. Certainly. Well, I mean, for instance, probably the biggest one is China, because China has had so many problems trying to keep up with the populations moving to cities. Um, Pretty shattering experiences, in fact, because it's like up until a few years ago, everybody just had a pig at home. Now, everybody's moving to cities, and not only do they not have that pig that they're raising at home because they're living in an apartment, they also want more meat because they're making more money. Pretty much everybody who makes money wants to eat meat. And so all of a sudden you have a vastly huger demand. Now what's happened is a few pig farmers there have tried to increase their pig production. Huge problems, lots of disease, a black market taking the diseased pigs. Um, I think it was like four or five years ago they ended up with like 20,000 dead pigs floating down the river to Shanghai. Um, So it was just, it became a huge problem. The Chinese no longer trust their own pork. So that's why they bought Smithfield ham. And they're, buying, they're bringing over a lot of their pork from the United States now. And it's one of the things that's, it's, it's a political issue because they want to just turn all of the Midwest into a pig farm. And so there's the US is constantly watching them just going, no, it's not our job to feed a one and a half billion people you can't just have nothing but pigs here. We still have to protect the land. We still have to protect the economy. We still have to protect the environment. We still have to, and so we're keeping a hold on them. But it is also forcing them to do a lot of research into things like the, the waste conversion into energy and waste disposal and all these other things that uh, take place. So that's our biggest shipping overseas. Now, as far as other port coming in, um, they've only recently lifted a ban on all Italian meat coming into the US famous movie with Sophia Loren trying to get the mortadella into the country because a lot of countries have diseases amongst their pigs that we don't have and so we limit how many of pork products can come from countries where they have those diseases so Italy now has several um, regions where the pork is safe and disease-free and that pork can be brought over here Um, But fortunately, a lot of Italians moved here, and there's an awful lot of really great stuff being made here. So almost none are corporate owned. Um, In the United States, 90% of all corn is raised on a family farm. 80% of all crops nationwide are raised on family farms. Sometimes, if a family has a big enough farm, they will incorporate. But that's not the same as being a corporate farm. These are all still family farms. I mean, it's one of those things I just, I, there are some wonderful, wonderful people out there that, that love the animals and have been in the land for five, six generations. And the farms are big now because only 1% of the population is farming. So you kind of have to have big farms because. More people are eating the food and fewer are raising it. So 100 years ago, 50% of the population was farmers, so the farmers have had to get bigger. They are still almost entirely family farms. It's one of the reasons I love the story of, of agriculture in the, you know, in the United States, particularly the Midwest, is because the businesses, the, um, the farms, they're all just, it's all all in the family. I mean, that's it's like with the corn book, you know. It's just like a Jiffy Pop, or not Jiffy Pop, um, Jolly Time popcorn, you know. Started by Clyde Smith, and today the CEO is Clayton Smith. It's his great-grandsons, you know. It's uh, the popcorn machine invented by C.C. Creeters in Chicago. Today, the CEO is Charlie Creeters, his great-great-grandson. You know, there's a huge number of family stories here, and the farming is one of them. Um, lots of great farm channels out there about, um, on YouTube, for instance, where you can actually see farmers at work, and they are very much family-oriented. And and the thing I love, too, is the sense of community. Um, a lot of them have co-ops. For instance, when I was, I was in um, Ohio, and I got to tour one of the co-ops. And I'm talking to the guy who's in charge of the co-op. And what a co-op does is it will buy stuff for the farm. It will buy gasoline. It will buy uh, grain. It will buy whatever is necessary in bulk so that all the surrounding farms that are members can buy it. it you know, It's like Sam's Club for farmers. Um, and he just said, oh, yeah, well, so-and-so just died, and so I'm taking care of his widow and helping her with the farming this year. You know, there's that sense of community. Farm, yeah, farming is very nice. It's uh, And it is very much a family business. It is, very it is very dangerous. Actually, yeah, it's second only to coal mining as far as dangerous, just because there's so many big pieces of equipment now. And then even those grain bins. I mean, it's one of those things, you fall into one of those grain bins, you won't make it out. So, yeah, so... Anyway, got a hand back there, yes? What is the basis of uh,
0: religions prohibiting the consumption of pork?
1: Um, Well, there's a lot of reasons that a lot of people, I mean, it's like everybody wants to have one unified theory, um, but I think a lot of places have different reasons. Now, when I was in Mongolia, for instance, people were just like, well, you don't eat pork because that's Chinese. Um, Now, as far as, well, as far as Judaism, because Islam just basically borrowed it from Judaism, so as far as Judaism goes, I figure there are two possible reasons. One is divine, divine revelation, which I've always been comfortable with, and the other would be inspired observation. Um, the All the laws, yes? But they don't do any carnivores, and because I, I, I did mention earlier, it's like all carnivores have trichinosis. But the food laws, well I should say, it's just the mosaic law overall. The promise is not like you get some kind of religious b- b- bonus. The promise is you will suffer none of the diseases of the surrounding people if you obey these laws. And if you suffer none of those diseases, that makes it clearly it's about health. Um, because the law doesn't just include the not eating pigs. Now, the reason pigs became a big deal is when the Seleucids came along, um, they basically said, eat pigs or die. It was sort of like the Inquisition, you know? It was one of those things, if you want to prove that you you know are, are are going to serve us, then you have to eat pork, and, and so the Jews choose, chose to die. so it became about pigs. but if you look at the whole lot, it includes things like burying your excrement outside the camp, washing your hands after telling somebody touching someone who was sick. you know so it was all about health so whether whether like I said, whether you think somebody's noticed you know, inspired inspiration, or observation, or whether you believe in divine revelation, it was still always about health, and you, you could live forever if you followed all the food laws. So, yes? Cool, okay, okay. Well, pigs are uh, pigs are very similar to humans. It's one of the reasons why in Vietnam, when they were eating people, they called it long pork. Um, but anyway, pigs are, are, their their heart systems, unlike cows or sheep, which have like, are their ruminants, they have very complicated stomach systems and everything else. Pigs are very much set up like we are. Their hearts work like ours do, which is why the heart valve works. The uh, stomach works like ours does. They're omnivores. Um, So there's a lot of hope. I mean, they're great for testing things. Pigs are how we discovered, pigs are how we discovered um, endorphins. You know, it's one of those things, they're great for using research in Israel. The one kibbutz that's allowed to raise pigs is raising them for medical research. So, so there's a considerable amount of crossover. I do think that we need to sort of keep an eye on it because there is that possibility of straying into the, the region of, of being goofy because they're talking about um, well, they actually, I think it was last January, they finally succeeded in the first chimera, which is a pig that had human cells growing in it. Um, so it was, it's, it's very useful for testing things, it's very useful for caring for things. It does spread a lot of diseases that we can catch, but yes, the body parts are similar enough to ours that especially the heart valves are, are useful. So, anybody else? Okay, let's go eat some pork. Oh, go on. Well, thank you very much. Oh, and by the way, if anyone actually wants to know even more about pork, I did happen to bring a couple of copies of my book with me. And if you don't want to buy it today, I have postcards. I'm sorry? Pardon? Oh, I, Kathy spent all day yesterday and all
0: last night smoking some pork butt for us. So. This week we're having barbecue because this is Cynthia's Program on pork and back in August we discussed it and said well what about pulled pork and I did that yesterday because I am like you know the bleeding edge of everything and I'd like to point out (laughs) I thought when I bought the you know there was pork shoulder on sale a few weeks ago at Jewel, it was 99 cents a pound okay so I bought the two biggest ones I could find in the case one close to 10 pounds the other one uh, almost nine pounds okay One I bought for my household, one is for you guys. (laughs) What I didn't take into account is how much time it takes to prepare a pork shoulder. It's an hour and a half to two hours a pound. Oh, yes. So I started smoking these puppies at about 9 o'clock yesterday morning. And around 10 o'clock last night, it was like, you know... I was at the point where I needed to feed more charcoal, and I'm like, I think I don't need to do this all night. So I did, and I'm f- glad my, fr- my, fr- my one of my barbecue friends is not here to hear it. They'll probably be here next week. I wrapped it in foil, put it in the oven at 225 degrees. I pulled the first one at 5 o'clock this morning, and the other one I pulled out at 8 o'clock. The reason I did it was because I wanted to make sure I could make this offer and not embarrass myself. (laughs) So at 7 o'clock this morning, I took my two forks and pulled that pork apart, and it just like, mercy me, I don't want to be here anymore, and they just fell apart like crazy. So if you'd like, as part of the added entertainment of coming to one of our meetings... um, Either when Stephanie I mean sorry, when Cynthia is taking questions, I could go quietly back there and pull it apart. Or we could wait until it's all over and we could all see how a pulled shoulder pulls apart. Would you like to see that? Okay, good. Well one yes, so that's enough. I'll just <laughs>